again. So our next guest broke through here in the airport issue um, of Granted, which you'll remember for two reasons, actually. Rachel Cusk was here, and also I wrote a piece saying, why weren't there any men in that issue all about feminism? Um, anyway, so her story was the incredible and incredibly dark, the sex lives of African girls. Championed by Salman Rushdie and Toni Morrison, we are very lucky to have her here tonight to read for the very first time from her debut novel, Ghana Must Go. Please welcome Tay Selassie. <laughs> of my novel, which is going to be published, I think, unless Venetia changes her mind in March and April, sorry, April, and it's called Ghana Must Go. Okay. At this point in the novel, just because I'm not starting at the beginning, I'll tell you that a very well-meaning Ghanaian surgeon has been fired from his job, and in this bit, he's sort of recounting how and why. So I'll do the thing that writers do where they look down and read and then look up at you, but you should know that I can't see any of you without my glasses. <laughs> so if you're dozing off, don't, don't worry, I won't know. Okay, Here, I really won't, I really won't. I can see your camera, young lady, okay. And the girl from New York. I lived in Harlem, okay. So. I am afraid we have to let you go. Silence, the length of the table. So long. An oval-shaped table with squat, rounded armchairs that looked like they spun like the cups ride at fairs. With half-circle armrests and leather upholstery, red with brass studs and the hospital trustees. A room in the hospital he'd never before seen on the uppermost floors where the offices were but familiar at once from a lifetime of interviews, med school, scholarship, res residency, fellowship, mortgage, loan, a room of judgment. With the requisite oppressive room of judgment decor, polished wood, Persian rug, unread books with red spies, maximum number, countless books, dark red books no one read, heavy drapes through which dribbled in bright, hopeless light, swirls of color, feasting colors, plums, mustards, and wines, and white faces, the odd woman, an Asian woman, who spoke. Having reviewed all the details of Mrs. Cabot's appendectomy and of the complaint that the Cabots lodged against you therewith, this body believes that, though a phenomenal surgeon, you failed, but Kwaku couldn't hear her. He could hear only Fola at 23 years old with her law school acceptance letter framed on the wall, with a full ride to Georgetown and Olu in utero say, one dream's enough for the both of us. She would follow him to Baltimore and postpone studying law and give birth to their baby with not a penny to their name and sell flowers on the sidewalk and take showers in a kitchen so that one of them could realize his dream. 20 years exactly from that to this moment, the whole thing erected on the foundation of a dream, general surgeon without equal, Guinean Carson and the rest of it, boy child, good at science, makes good, and he had. He had seen the thing through, the whole kit and caboodle, the accolades, the piano lessons, the sprawling brick house, the staggering prep school tuition, the calling by every morning at a quarter past seven in scrubs and white coat. 
He had held up his end of the bargain, his success for her sacrifice, two words that they never said aloud. Never success, because what were its units of measurements? US dollars, frame diplomas, and what quantity was enough, and never sacrifice, for it always sounded hostile when she said it, and absurd when he attempted like he didn't know the half. The whole thing was standing on the sand of this bargain, but they never dared broach it after one dream's enough. When they fought, they fought around it about the diapers or the dishes, or the dinner parties with colleagues, part of his job, waste of her time. But they knew, or he knew, that her sacrifice was endless, and as the sacrifice was endless, so must be the success. He would see the thing through if he could, and he prayed so. He blushed to admit that it was what he wanted most, to be worthy of the pan-Nigerian princess, as they'd called her, that sophisticated escapee from the 67 war with the bell-bottom jeans and the gap in her teeth, so much smarter and sexier than everyone else, even him at Little Lincoln, a princess among plebs, not by having succeeded, but by being a success. To be worthy of Fola, to make it worth it for Fola, he had to keep being successful. So quite literally couldn't process the words that came next. If there were words that followed, you failed. Then, 11 months arguing that he hadn't in court, hadn't failed, had been fired without cause, which he had. She'd waited too long to be rushed to the hospital where they'd taken too long to decide to proceed. 77-year-old smoker with a ruptured appendix and a bloodstream infection days old, not a chance. Jane, Ginny Cabot, patron of research sciences, socialite, wife, mother, grandmother, alcoholic, and friend, would be dead before dawn, whether in a bed at Beth Israel or in bed on Beacon Hill, the higher thread count. The only reason Kweku had even attempted the appendectomy was because the Cabots had called the president of the hospital, a family friend, to suggest very politely that in light of their donation, surely a last-ditch operation wasn't too much to ask. It wasn't. And they wanted the very best surgeon. The president found Kweku as he was leaving to go home. The Cabots looked at Kweku, them back at the president. A word, they said politely, then moved to the hall. Kip Cabot, losing his hearing, spoke too loudly for the acoustics, but he's a very fine surgeon, the finest we have. The Cabot family physician, smug, a general practitioner, on retainer, a kept doctor, tanned, salt and pepper hair, stayed with Kweku in the office while Kip continued in the hallway. And where did you do your training? Air quotes. In the jungle, on beasts. Kweku answered genteely, chimpanzees talk, great in structures, who knew? <laughs> the deliberators returned from the hall at that moment. Everyone flushed to varied shades of a natural pink, but resolute. Whatever else he was, Kweku was fit to operate. Someone thumped him on the shoulder. Kweku addressed himself to Kip. In my professional opinion, sir, it's too late for surgery. But the longer I stand here, the more useless I become. The Cabots didn't want his professional opinion. They wanted him to go and scrub in. Hours, bloody business, trying to save the woman's life, with the president there observing from the gallery upstairs, apologetic, so embarrassed. I gave my word to the Cabots, but a masterful operation as per usual, his best. Clean, cut, fine, pluck, sew, snip, white blub from face. Until a weary nurse called it, time of death, 3 a.m. And he left, walked out, got into his car, let out his breath. He still doesn't know how he drove himself home. The next thing he remembers is waking up clothed in the sitting room of all rooms with the Johnny Walker gold and his slipper sort of dangling from the tops of his toes and the smell of kiwi strawberry inexplicably in the air and the sense that something somewhere had changed. 
Then, 11 months pretending that it hadn't, that nothing had changed. Getting out of bed every morning, leaving the house, scrubs coat briefcase, like the Singaporean protagonist in that movie he never saw, but always discussed as if he'd seen it, having read all the reviews, it being fashionable among surgeons to see Asian language films. According to the reviews, the man is fired from his bank, but too ashamed to tell his family, still pretends to go to work, getting up, suiting up, going to sit in local parks to scan job ads like that, but no parks. He'd leave, drive to Kleinman and Kleinman for an update, long-term park, then cross the bridge to Harvard Law School on foot. Once there, he'd flash his plainly fraudulent alumni ID card, care of Marty's black classmate and doubles partner, Aaron Falls, to the plainly underpaid Latino li law library security guard whose accent produced the daily joke, good morning, Mr. False. In the stacks until two o'clock researching cases, wrongful dismissal, discrimination, malpractice, break for lunch, then more reading until evening when he'd cross back to Boston, the river liquid gold in the gloaming. So I, I, I should begin by admitting that I cried for about the, the last 20 pages <laughs> of this novel. I cried for the last 80, don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, you say, you, you say in the introduction, it's the story of a family of the simple, devastating ways in which families tear themselves apart. No, I don't and, say that. You, know, you, don't, you don't say that. The publisher that, yeah. says that. <laughs> of the, and, and the ways that they go to pull back together. I mean, and it is, there, is, there is a sense in which I, I feel like the, the members of this family, and they feel also like they're acting out something that has a, a script that's been given to them or they're resisting a script that's been given to them um and i wondered if you could talk a little bit a little bit about what that script might be for the characters and who they are do i have a choice no okay, not really right. <laughs> a bit about what that script might be and what it means to the characters so this family is um they're second generation the father's from ghana the mother is nigerian and a little bit scottish like mine the kids were born in the States. Uh, two of them are twins, two of them are not. And one of them lives in London, the rest on the East Coast, a bit like my family. And um, they're wrestling with this idea of what a real family should look like, like families who have photo framed photographs of <laughs> grandparents <laughs> on the walls, on the stairs, and they don't. They, they don't. They've never met some of their grandparents. They live all over the world. They, they don't even really know what to eat at Christmas. And um, the children, as you say, Damien, are struggling with this idea that that's what a real family is, and they are not. And um, some of the children react to that by trying to create. The oldest son certainly tries to create a real family with his girlfriend, as you know. Yeah, so Ling and all the... Exactly, yeah. Ling, the um, obstetrician. And the rest of them sort of struggle until, I guess, they, they come to the end. Um. The, the end, again, I, it's very difficult to talk about a novel that's not yet out because I don't want to give away, I give away too much. Um, but the end is just so powerful, it's, it's almost hard for me to talk about it. Um, but um, let's talk about, go back to the beginning and talk about that script. Um, and you mentioned there a little bit about the similarities between your family and some of the, and some of the similarities of the family in the book, because you're also a twin, so I think, I guess that's I guess, a good place to start talking about for the twinness sure, of it. For sure, for um, sure. So when my family read this book, 
So well, you let them write. You let them read. No, no, no. It's not true that I let them read the book. I should say when the when my family read the first part of this book, <laughs> they said, "Oh, okay. So the father's a surgeon from Ghana, and the mother's a, a flower aficionado from Nigeria and Scotland, and they're twins, and one of them's a doctor like us." And I was like, "No, no, 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 no." <laughs> I mean, I just I would always use this really, really piss poor metaphor. Like, no, it's like. The surface of cabinets, I just took the front. Nothing inside is from our <laughs> It's laminate. <laughs> they were, they're all doctors. They were so unconvinced. They were like, no, no, they are like us. But it is true that the, um, I can't say you guys anyway. And you're all so good looking. It's intimidating. Um, they, they, they were, yeah, they were really nervous and angry. And then my mom didn't read my book for a year, which was kind of awkward. And then I asked her why, and she said she was really terrified. And then finally she did, and she said, my mother, um, I was born in London, she speaks with an adorable accent, which I won't mimic here. She said, oh, no, 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 that mother is not me. She is not nearly glamorous enough. <laughs> <laughs> and the mother in the book is played glamorous. It's pretty glamorous. I mean, she's really glamorous. <laughs> wow, your mother is insane. She's insane. She's insane. <laughs> And so, so talk to me about that, that, that kind of experience of, of twinness in the book, because I'm very interested in that. I mean, I have siblings, but I'm, I'm not a twin, and I've always been interested in the idea that, I mean, it's, it's, it's not, you know, a cliche of being two halves of the same whole. It's two separate people, but there, that there's a relationship within the, the, really, the rest of the family right. that the rest of the family are really interested in it and cannot get at, right? Correct. Yeah. Well, yeah, I am a twin. My name Taye. It means first twin in, in Yoruba. And... Um, it's, it's great that I'm a twin, because even if I weren't, I would still be using twins in my novels. But now I get to say that I'm not copying every great novelist who's used twins in their novels. But instead, I'm just writing from my own depth of experience, but only the surface. Only the surface. <laughs> <laughs> but it's true that being a twin is like nothing, is like no, it's like nothing else. I suppose it's like being finding your true love and, and feeling the Yoruba say that twins are... Is your twin Two, a boy? My twin's a girl, sorry. Okay. When I say in love, I mean that really laminate way, in a way. Like, it's just <laughs> <laughs> vaguely in love. But no, my twin's my sister and my best friend. And um, yeah, the Yoruba say that twins are two halves of a spirit that was too big to fit in one body. And we feel that way. And that's great. But it's also a great metaphor. And I think t twins, I, I had the great pleasure of meeting the writer Ar um, Arundhati Roy in India last year, and I asked her if she was a twin, because in God of Small Things, she writes about twins pitch perfectly. She said, no, I'm not a twin at all. I'm just a person. And you know, twins are just that metaphor for what it is to be so connected to someone else that you don't know where your identity begins and yours ends. This is not my experience with my <laughs> twin sister, but it's certainly the experience of the twins in my book. Um, tell me about about Ghana Moscow because I must say I mean I didn't understand about the expulsion until until I read the novel so and then the Think, title things comes you don't know things I don't know <laughs> exactly laconic um, I thought it meant lazy too that's horrible I'm a writer anyway. Um, <laughs> I had to look laconic up earlier just Did to be sure. Really? Okay. And I looked up the same Urban Dictionary definition that he used in his book, so I know that it's fine. Fine. <laughs> fine. Great. Um, Ghana Moscow is the name given to the blue and red plastic massive plaid bags that if you've ever been to an airport, you've seen um, really good-looking brown immigrants carrying, <laughs> like teeming with goods, maybe small children. And um, <laughs> that's, that's what you call a Ghana must-go bag. 
And in Ghana, we use this term freely, like, okay, you know, I was at the airport and Delta told me I couldn't take my fourth Ghana must go bag. Like, who are they? <laughs> like this, it's parlance. But, but I had no idea whence that phrase came. None whatsoever. And um, when I started writing this novel, I, I wrote, you know, three paragraphs and then I saved the Microsoft Word document as Ghana must go because I was in Ghana and I just thought Ghana must go. My problem is once I save a, a file, in a certain way, I never change the name again, ever. So it's just like whatever Microsoft Word decides to save the document <laughs> as, that's the name of the, of the pieces. Really, The Sex Lives of African Girls, Microsoft Word chose that, chose that title. Okay, so I it say worked. to my... It um, And so I say to my mom, okay, I think I'm just going to call my book Ghana Must Go. And she said, do you know where that phrase comes from? And I said, yeah, the airport. <laughs> <laughs> And my mother, who's very glamorous, as I've said, was like, no, 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 no. In 1983, in Nigeria, there was a huge Ghanaian population, and they were doing very well because we are peace-loving people, unlike our belligerent Nigerian cousins, even though I'm a half Nigerian, I say that from knowledge. Yes, yes. Strong clap, strong clap, strong clap. So, sure. And not who I expected. What's going on there? You were, hi, sure. Okay. So, Ghana, Moscow, in 1983, January, the Nigerian government summarily expels the entire Ghanaian population. Who can do that in 1983? Who can even do that? Nigeria. So they were like, you have to go. And the Ghanaians who were trading... Because they were perceived to be doing well. Kind of, because they were perceived... I mean, why do populations get summarily dismissed? For that, we would need to refer to the history of Syria, actually. <laughs> but the Ghanaians have to go, and they have no time to pack up their things, so they use this plaid plastic imported from China yeah. to wrap up all of their things. And as they're going, the Nigerians, gentle in nature, are like, Ghana must go. <laughs> Ghana go home. And so these bags, which were fabricated, like stitched really quickly out of what had previously been um, used for awnings and things like this, became known in Nigeria as Ghana must go bags. But like all expelled, cheerful, oppressed people. <laughs> the Ghanaians were like, okay, we took our bags, we left your country two million deep, and you're mocking us calling them Ghana must go bags. We'll call them Ghana must go bags too, and we'll import them back to China, and they'll become the, sta the standard bearer of immigrant bags the world over. Moment of pride when Louis Vuitton made a Ghana must go bag in 2008. Yeah, yeah, clap for that. Clap, yeah. for, that. clap for the Louis Vuitton Ghana must go bag. Which, needless to say, my mom has one. I should just mention that Louis Vuitton just launched a lettery salon. Ooh, I know, so tacky. Um, so tacky. Sylvia, your question. I know, I knew you were there. I just saw the arm on periphery. Go up, go. Hello. Um, you've literally come straight off the plane from Rome. I have, in yes. Kimono. Yes, and you've been tweeting about your favourite things. I have to ask, 4am Nutella Pornettis. What are they and how awesome are they? Who sent so, you here? has so, <laughs> been spending time on, on the Twitter feed um, of T, and she knows that you just got off the plane from Rome, which is true, you were running late, you were in a yeah. car from here, so glamorous, it's she. Um, <laughs> and something about a, a Nutella at 4 a.m.? It is true that if you happen to be awake in Rome at 4 a.m., naturally having woken at 3.30 to start your writing day, not having stumbled home trying to end your night, <laughs> um, you can go into the, um, the, 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 
like the warehouse bakery, not the bakery, but the warehouse that supplies the bakeries. And there, at 4 o'clock in the morning, they're starting to make the cornetti, the croissant. And um, they have them out there in these big trays. And there's this old lady. She's really romanaccia. And for a pittance, you can get the best Nutella-filled croissant that you've ever had in your life. So should you wish to go to Rome at 4 o'clock in the morning, call me, and I'll take you there to get the best <laughs> croissant you've ever had. Uh, now, tell us about um, Acropol and the essay, um, because I mean, what you've just said is a perfect kind of case in point for for exactly that. The Nutella, know? yeah, the Nutella for EM and Rome. Oh, yeah, oh, okay. that, that's but that's where I'm at. <laughs> um, so, tell us about the essay. Um, yeah, so uh, 2005, I wrote an essay called "Bye Bye Babar" or "What Is an Afropolitan," and I wrote it because I could not answer the question always asked with the best of intentions: "Where are you from?" I'd always be like, uh, uh, I was born in London. And then they'd be like, well, why do you speak with a vaguely American accent? And I was like, oh, because I went to school there. And it's like, well, why do you have such a high melanin content? I'm like, oh, because my mom was, is Nigerian, but she was born in London because her mom's Scottish, but my dad's from Ghana, but I only met him when I was 16. And, and they would be like, what? So then finally, I got, I got, or if they're here, they'd be like, what? So I got really sick of this. And I thought there has to Sorry, be some... Sorry, what was that? Like, the, was that a Scottish you... accent? Yeah, that was my great-grandmother. I was channeling my great-grandma. Oh, yeah. Anyway, so... <laughs> so then I thought, all right, I can't say that I'm West African because no one believes me. I can't say I'm American because I'm in a kimono. I can't say I'm British <laughs> because I don't use broad vowels. So there's, there's, there's got to be something else. So I actually, I was young. I made up this word, Afropolitan. And then because I was nerdy. I wrote a, an essay, as you do, about this word. But then the most amazing thing happened. For two years, nothing at all happened. Like a small publication in London published it, and three people were like, you're a genius. And then I just went back to <laughs> drinking heavily and eating Nutella Cornetti at four in the morning. And then, um, not so heavily, but then one day, um, I, my friend sends me this, this uh, link and you know, like in an email, you can see all the four. You know, you know in the beginning, like years ago, people didn't know BCC. I mean, it was always there, but no one saw it there. So you would get the email that was like five pages of email addresses. Like who? Anyway, so I get one of those, and I'm like scrolling down to the bottom, and then at the end, it says this guy wrote an essay that basically, comma, like, comma, defines us. Full stop. So. Somehow I already knew that it was my essay. I don't know why. I was like, this guy? So I click on the link, and there indeed was my essay. Because I should say, Taye is given to first twins, male and female. So it was an honest mistake. But then I was like, is my writing style masculine? I mean, it was a real... Do I need another word for like women writers who write... Anyway, I had a heart-to-heart -heart with V.S. Naipaul about this, and everything's fine. But um, yeah, someone had sent all around... West and East Africa, my piddling little essay, which had been published online. So then I wrote a very stern letter to this publication in Nairobi saying they had to pay me for my article because I was dirt poor, and they did. 40, 40 US dollars. <laughs> 40 US dollars, every single one of them. Um, and so, so you casually dropped in there of the Esma poll. Um, and, um, and, and you know, you've had There's incredible... really no other way to drop him. I know. Like, if you're gonna or Diana would say, Vidya. Vidya. Um, so how, how do we, you know, you've had this incredible kind of, you know, you've been lauded, I guess is the best way to say it, for, by amazing people like Salman Rushdie and Toni Morrison. I mean, how does that, how, how does that feel? Like, do you feel welcome? Do you feel intimidated? Does, how, how, 
And how has it affected, do you think, the success that you're, that you're having, and I have to say, about to have with this fantastic book? Um, sure. The first time I met Professor Morrison, of course, I was intimidated. We were at a little dinner, and there was one seat next to her that was empty because I'd come late, which is my want. And um, no one would take it, so I sat next to her. And she said to me, she has this really um, wonderful, gravelly voice. I don't know if any of you have ever heard it, but it's like... Um, I said her voice, she sound, it's a voice that sounds the way train tracks smell. You know, like that great smell of train tracks or gas station. I don't know, it's just really elemental. Anyway, she said to me, what do you do? And I said, um, I really don't talk in this voice, but it's like the voice in my head. Like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a writer, I think. And she said, either you are a writer or you're not. So then I just like, had my lobster bisque or whatever. And then like 10 minutes later, the conversation has clearly moved on. I turned to her and I was like, I, I just wanted to say <laughs> that I am a writer. <laughs> so she says to me, oh great, like what are you doing at Oxford? Where are you going next? And I was like, oh, I'm going to New Jersey. And she was like, what are you going to do there? And I was like, I don't know. And she was like, one thing about writers is either they write or they don't. <laughs> So now I move on to my like poorly seasoned salmon filet, like just like, oh my gosh, like, I can't believe this date is going so badly. <laughs> and uh, then like 10 minutes later, I'm like, I also just wanted to say that I do write. <laughs> it's just, I haven't written anything good since I was in high school and I'm now 27, so it's a little awkward. And she was like, well, uh, okay, fine. Um, what are you going to do? It's like, I'm dropping out of my PhD program. I'm going to New Jersey, and I'm going to write. And she was like, great. And when I got there to New Jersey, it turned out that she lived down the street from me, which is just a stroke of incredible good fortune. Um, I was in Lawrenceville. She was in Princeton. And she sent her son to where I was, and her son said, Taye, my mom wanted to know if you wanted to come over for drinks. <laughs> like, no, I'm busy. Like, tell your mom I'll be there next week. I was like, of course. And she said, he said to me, she also said, tell her not to bring any work because I don't want her to be scared. I was like, I'm going to be scared anyway. You're Toni Morrison. Like, yeah. what? I don't know what kind of drinks you're serving, but I'm going to be terrified the whole time. So I, I go there. I go to her house, which it took me like three hours to dress for, by the way. Because like, what do you wear to meet your literary hero? Um, and I get there, and she says, have a seat, and she pours a really lovely... What did you wear? Oh, I was gonna, I thought you were going to say, what did we drink? I was like, Chateau Neuf de Pop. Like, who knew? Well, what, did you, what did you wear, though? Um, I was, no, I was fresh out of grad school. I think I was wearing, like, H&M jeans, and just, it was bad. It was bad. <laughs> it was really bad. But she was like, oh, yeah, have a seat. So then she said, I want to help you. And I said, oh, is it so obvious that, that I need help? And I promise you, she was like, yes. It was the H&M jeans. It was the H&M jeans. <laughs> so she did, she did, she did. She said, you know, you know what's, what's blocking you? What's stopping you? And I don't know if any of you guys write. I hope most of you do. But I, what it was, it was so simple. It was that I had been through this sort of educational process that had conditioned me always to seek approval and to seek praise and to hand in an essay or at Oxford to talk to my tutor and wait for the reaction. 
and I'm, you know, I'm not a comedian. I, you know, I'm, 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 a, I'm a novelist. I just cram a lot of things into a structure. So I, it was really hard for me to get back into that space where I trusted my own voice. And she, like a magical fairy godmother, writer, therapist, oracle woman, told me what you need to do is just not think about your audience. And I said to her, but can you really do that when you're writing? Do you not think about your audience at all? And she said, quote, one time, one time, there was one time when I started to write and I felt so scared about what people would think. And I was like, see, see, it's natural. I mean, Toni Morrison goes through this. When was that time? She was like, after I won the Nobel Prize for literature. <laughs> really nervous about what people would think. Uh, that seems like a really great place to have a break. Thank you, Terry Sarasi. I'll see you in 15 minutes.